Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to take our hearts of stone and to replace them with hearts of flesh, that you may write your law upon our hearts, that our lives would reflect your love in the world, and that we would live to your glory. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's a rule of fasting, at least within traditional Christian circles, that I think sometimes we forget about or want to forget about. And it goes along this lines, that before you come to the Lord's table to partake in Holy Communion, you should fast. And, and some churches teach that it's an hour, most modern Modern understanding of it is it's an hour, and that's really nice because you can look at your watch and be like, well, normally communion's about 10.50, so as long as I'm done by 9.50, I'm good to go. <laughs> Although the more traditional and, and ancient understanding is that you should fast from midnight on until you come to the Lord's table, and then some, some actually even teach that you can't have coffee, which I don't particularly observe. <clears throat> You're welcome, by the way. But I have a question about this. If you observe it or, or if you think this is a good idea, what happens if you go to a friend's house that you love or you're staying with a friend that you love or, or perhaps a, a, somebody that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't follow Christ, and they know you want to go to church that morning and, and they're being a good host and they say, well, hey, we have an hour and a half before you need to be at church. Why don't we go have breakfast? I don't actually think that there's a right answer to this question, but I do know that there's a wrong answer because I've decidedly answered this wrong in my life. The wrong answer is you don't give them a lecture about how you ought to fast before you go to church and blah, 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 blah. That, that's the wrong answer. I think there's, there's room to live within your conscience and there's lived to, room to follow grace. But you see, so often we become incredibly rigid in our religious observation, observations. But our life in Christ isn't to make us rigid, but to make us loving. Though not lawless, as we'll see as we work our way through the passage this morning, but it's to free us from rigidness so that we can love and follow Christ more obediently. And this is ultimately what the gospel lesson draws out this morning. Last week, we ended with this kind of tragic statement that the disciples' hearts were hardened. The disciples' hearts were hardened, and then we get to this little passage between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 that acts between a bridge, and I think it's a really important bridge. It acts between a bridge between the disciples' hardened hearts and the Pharisees' hardened hearts. And we see Christ doing something. He lands and immediately people recognize him and come running to him, hoping to be healed, hoping to just touch the edge of his garment, that they might be healed. And to understand what's happening here, we got to rewind back into the Old Testament and understand that, that the greatest concern of the Old Testament prophets were twofold. First, that worship became defiled. Worship ceased to honor the Lord, 
And out of that flowed the creation of an unjust society. So two things happened. The Lord had set up a right, a good system of worship for the people, and it set up a just society for the people so that all could live free in his goodness. But by worshiping and sullying the temple, the people, the people bent their knees to false gods. And in doing so, in bending their knees to false gods, they lost their way and started to justify their sin against other people. And so each and every prophet that you read speaks about this injustice that they're seeing in the land. But it's not hopeless. Ezekiel goes into great detail, and it was really tempting to go on this long tangent about Ezekiel this morning, and, and the Spirit helped me. Thank you, Spirit. But Ezekiel makes this promise that's really important and, and, and plays into this. About two-thirds, most of the way through the book, we've, we've seen all this horrible stuff happen. But then the Lord promises through Ezekiel that he would pour out his spirit. That he would pour out his spirit and that he would then give a new heart and a new spirit that he would put within the people. He will remove the hearts of stone from, from your flesh and give you hearts of flesh. And this is what's happening here. Not necessarily removing the hearts of stones quite yet, but he continually reveals who he is and that he is capable of giving these new hearts to all who would believe in him. And so this work that he's doing of making these people well, of making them clean from their infirmities and their sins, points to the reality that he will make us well. That he will make all who believe in him to have new hearts. And now as we enter into chapter 7, there's kind of that awkward change over to this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. <clears throat> and the text <clears throat> draws out specifically that the Pharisees were concerned that the disciples were eating with unclean hands. And, and quite literally, what the, disciples, what the Pharisees say here is that they were eating the breads, which is really weird that, they would use a, that Mark would use a plural word here. But it's literally that they were eating the breads without unwashed hands. And the most logical conclusion of what is being referred to here is going back, not last week, but two weeks ago to the feeding of the 5,000. And perhaps some of them were even there or they heard like about this thing. And they go, we got him. We have all of these laws about how to make things clean. And he just was like, no, sit on the grass. Don't worry about it. I'm going to hand out bread to all of you. <clears throat> and you look at what all of they wanted to make clean, right? And, and there were many other traditions, Mark records, that they observed, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Literally, they'd, they'd wash down the seats that they'd sit on to eat. But Jesus just told the people to sit and rest in the grass, to recline in the grass, and that he would feed them. And so they have that moment where they think that they have them, have him. 
I had a church history professor, and, and I loved his analogy. He, he, describes the history, he described the history of the church as a drunken peasant. Just a little crude, admittedly, but it's also fairly fair. If you look throughout the history of the church, as, as you watch, watch her, she kind of stumbles down the road. One, one second she stumbles into licentiousness, and the next, next second she picks herself up and stumbles into to self-righteousness and into legalism. And really, the history of religious observance is the same way. If we, if we think back about the charges that the prophets had against Israel, they had stumbled into licentiousness, into false worship, into all of these really bad things. And so what did the Pharisees do? Well, God has these fences around the things we should and shouldn't do. So we better build these fences around that. And then it seems like, because if we look back at, at, at the tradition of, of the time, some of these traditions aren't even recorded. So, so there's these fences, and then the Pharisees of that time seem to have even built further fences out because, God forbid, we even get close to these fences, not to mention the fences that he actually established. And so just like we as the church stumble from one side to the other, so, so did the Pharisees stumble to one side and to the other. But Jesus recognizes that what they've done is hypocrisy. They've made it impossible for somebody to approach God. They've made it impossible for somebody to even live, to even care for their parents. In order to be good, you had to call all of your stuff Corbin. So, so then it wasn't, which is something that's dedicated to God, so that then you couldn't even give it to your parents if they were in desperate need. And, and so... Jesus draws from Isaiah 29. And, and if you look this up, it's from the Septuagint, so your, your English Bibles aren't apt to have exactly the same wording, but it's the same idea if you look back at Isaiah 29. And he draws from him and says, This people has honored me, have honored me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of man. Jesus establishes against them that they hold more strongly to these traditions of men than what God actually commands. And not only, if we look at Isaiah 29 in total, not only do they they trust in their own traditions, the charge is stronger that they don't even know God. And we can kind of look back at the Pharisees and be like, silly Pharisees. Thank goodness we know better. But the reality is, is we're all really good at creating traditions that we want other people to follow. It was that Senate a few years back before everything went crazy, both in my personal life and in the world. And, and there was a, a man there who is kind of a friend and he was ranting about the liturgy and how it wasn't perfect. And he kept going and going, and finally I, I said to him, you know, isn't it great that despite us, God was glorified? I sometimes wonder why I don't have a lot of friends. <clears throat> you, you see, within our, our higher church tradition, the temptation is to hold on to like our liturgical tradition as strongly as possible and say, this is what it means to be a good Christian. 
or perhaps some other tradition like the tradition of fasting before coming to Holy Communion. Not that our liturgy is bad, it's beautiful and good and God-glorifying. Not that fasting is bad, it's good discipline to reveal our own sinfulness. But when our tradition becomes more important than honoring and glorifying God, more important than showing his love to the world around us, then we've, we've misaligned things. But the low church has its equal problems as well. So often they emphasize seeker-sensitive worship or 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 things like cool worship. And if, if, if you come to church and it's kind of drab that day and you leave feeling tired and no more uplifted than before, surely the spirit didn't work. And again, they miss that point, just as we have the temptation to miss that point. That ultimately God is glorified when we're obedient to him. Perhaps the way that we make up these rules that we want people to follow that's the most poignant and obvious today is through holding political ideologies as a way to measure orthodoxy. Oh, well, so-and-so doesn't vote how I vote. Surely they're not inside the true faith. And again, voting is good, holding political ideologies is good, but when they cause us to separate people from us because they don't see the world like we do, that's a problem. Instead, we preach Christ and live for his glory. We love making these arbitrary rules that, and unbiblical rules that govern people's behaviors. To a certain extent, I, I find myself sympathizing with the Pharisees, in fact. because It's, it's very tempting to be like the Pharisees and, and want to appear good. Especially as a pastor. I stand before you as a sinful person, just like all of you, but I want you all to think that I am good. And so it's really tempting to say, oh, well, we have to do X, Y, and Z in order for us to be good. You can ask Julie. She'll tell you. <clears throat> but almost always these, these extraneous rules that we set up are so that we look good. But they don't transform us. They do not reflect the goodness and grace of God in Christ. The law first, and then the, and then the grace of Christ, which fulfills the law, wasn't there to be burdensome. It wasn't there to make people feel better about themselves. It was there to act to transform the believer. It is there to reflect and flesh out in order to give you a new heart, in order to flesh out what the glory of God looks like in this world. As we reach the end, the disciples pull Jesus aside and they ask him what he's talking about. And he starts, and this is really funny how the ESV translated it. He starts with an explanation about dietary cleanliness laws and clarifying that the food that enters you doesn't cleanse you. Instead, it comes out. But the Greek is much more clear on what that means. If you have a question about that, I'm happy to answer it later. And it sets the, stat, the standard that, that, therefore, all things are clean. But then Jesus continues. Jesus continues that he's much more concerned about what comes out of your heart. What comes out of your heart shows who you are. And he gives a list 
And the list were to prick anyone's conscience. But he starts with the most grievous of sins. He starts with sexual immorality, which, which always makes people a little uncomfortable because it's such a hot-button issue today. He starts with it because, because it represents something important. Christian sexuality isn't the way it is because we're old and fuddy-duddy. It isn't the way it is because we like to feel higher and mightier than other people or because we like our traditions. But sexuality is designed to remain between the bounds of marriage because it reflects God's desire for us. It reflects God's desire to hold us, not for a moment, not for just a second, but for all of eternity. And so sexuality within a marriage represents part of the design for marriage to be eternal because we're bound together forever. Modern sexuality, if you pay attention, is viewed as something that can be easily thrown away. You grow tired of your lover, you can put them away and never talk to them again. You become pregnant with a child that's inconvenient for whatever reason, you can get rid of them with no judgment. But sexuality is meant to build a deeper and deeper bond between two people that reflects God's love for his people. And therefore, that is why it's viewed as so important by the church even to today, as uncomfortable as that is. Jesus continues with immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. And these seem as as grievous, if not more so. And we probably think, well, I haven't killed anybody lately. But then we remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount about hatred and lust. Hatred of your brother is the same as murdering your brother. Because by hating your brother, you sever that relationship with him. And he is as good as dead to you. Lusting after a woman is as bad as adultery for the same reasons. And then we get to covetous or greediness. We We can go either way of that. But it's desiring more than God has given you. It's desiring something that God hasn't given you, but perhaps has given to your neighbor. And when you do that, when you do that, suddenly you forget all the good gifts that God has given to you. Wickedness and deceit are fairly self-explanatory, and then we get to sensuality. And sensuality could also mean something like just losing control of yourself. In other words, instead of letting the spirit which you have been given rule your hearts, you let your flesh rule. Envy is along the same lines as coveting, but there's this ravenous sense to it. Coveting is kind of, oh, I would rather like my neighbor's car because it's nicer than mine. Envy is like, how can I get my neighbor's car? Slander could also be abusive speech. And, and these two ideas, slander and abusive speech, are the same side of the same, or two sides of the same coin. Right? Slander is speaking lies about someone. Well, abusive speech is rather plainly read as being cruel to somebody, but, but more subtly, it can also just be this desire to cut somebody down with your words. 
pride or arrogance. Here's some bad news. If up until now you're thinking, I don't struggle with any of these. I think we just found what you do struggle with. And then, of course, foolishness. Foolishness is denying that God is God and denying the nature and power of Christ and his saving grace. Now, you notice how Jesus led up to this list in verse 20. He leads up to it. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then he ends it very similarly. All evil things that come out come from within and they defile a person. You see, with, with our sin, you can even think back to Adam and Eve. I, that's one of my favorite scenes, right? God confronts Adam, and Adam's like, well, she gave me the fruit. And then she, she confronts Eve, and she's like, well, the snake gave it to me. When we get confronted with our sins, there's this temptation to blame somebody else, right? Well, you could think, you might say or think to yourself, well, sexual immorality is so rampant in our culture. Of course I'm going to struggle with it. Or perhaps social media has been shown to, to lead to envy. Of course I get envious sometimes. It's not my fault. Or I watch the news. My goodness. It's so unjust. No wonder I get upset and lose control and yell at the TV sometimes. Or sure. Maybe... <laughs> Well, I guess we now know about Ted's sin. <laughs> or, 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 sure, I, I stretch the truth about that person a little bit, but they did it first. But Jesus gives no room to us to blame others. Our sin is our own. And if I left you here today and you all went home depressed, I would be negligent. So I'm wrapping up, I promise. But the reality that we have to understand that this passage is pointing us to is something that will happen in the future to this, but is happening now for you. It's that God desires to give you a new heart or to renew your heart within you so that you would reflect his love in the dying world. If we sit and camp out in just reflecting on what sin is and why it's so deadly and so dangerous, then we, miss, then we miss what God has done for us. St. Paul said, where sin is increased, grace abounds all the more. Or put another way, the Anglican Puritan writer and preacher Richard Sibb wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. In other words, when you see your sin reflected before you and you grow despondent, remember what Christ has already done for you. He has forgiven you. He has taken it away from you so that he can implant in you a new heart. That new heart that transforms you from a sinner to a saint. He is making you new. This isn't passive on your part. This isn't just a thing that happens and you get to go along your merry way. But he is transforming you to new expectations, to new desires, to live a life that glorifies him. So if you are in Christ, you have been given 
a new heart. If you are in Christ, you are called to sacrifice your flesh daily, to free from, flee from your sins routinely, that Christ may reign in you all the more. <clears throat> that the law of man's tradition, the works of the flesh, may not rule your hearts, but the law of Christ's love may rule your hearts. And that by being transformed to the doing of good works, God would be glorified by you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.